Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. We are so happy that joining us once again today is Nina Mohanty, founder at Bloom Money. Nina, it's so good to chat with you again. And how have you been through all this pandemic madness? That's an understatement. And tell us about your new journey to launch Bloom. We are so excited to hear what's going on there. Yes, um, it has been <laughs> quite a year as we've been discussing um it has been a year of ups and downs, but it has been a very useful year, actually, to start something of one's own. Um, and actually, the origins of Bloom grew out of, pun completely intended, um, a lot of research that I started doing before the pandemic started, but kind of ramped up during during the first few lockdowns. and. It really gave me the time and the headspace to to start speaking to a lot of people. Um, but maybe to rewind a little bit, um, Bloom aims to serve migrants with familiar financial services. And I've always been very fascinated in the intersection of migration and financial services. My parents um, were both immigrants to the US. I'm an immigrant in the UK. Um, and we're living in like this hyper globalized world where up until a year and a half ago, perhaps, you know, it was easy to jump on a plane and, and start a new life somewhere. And so I've always just been really intrigued with what is it like to be a migrant? What is it like to to try and start a new life beyond my own experience? And I remember that. <laughs> horrifying and painful experience of trying to open a bank account in the UK and you go into that awful you know uh, limbo of oh I need a I need a phone number but in order to get a phone contract I need a bank account for the direct debit but in order to have the bank account I need a phone number and it's just over and over and over just going in this like vicious cycle. So that's something that I experienced firsthand. But then I started during during the pandemic speaking to literally anyone who would speak to me. You both know me well. I'm I always compare myself to a bit of a, a Labrador and I want to be everyone's friend and talk to everyone. And so I just started speaking to asylum seekers to settled refugees to domestic workers, you know, who are living in Mayfair and cleaning houses and taking care of babies. I spoke to au pairs. I spoke to migrant workers who are kind of just here for a few months and then go back home and, and economists and students and anyone that would speak to me and trying to understand what that journey was like. And one of the things I'm sure we can talk about later, I'm sure we'll touch on is I've just been a bit um, not disappointed, but I feel like we have not been uh, fulfilling the full potential of fintech in the past few years. And so that was something that felt like now was the right time to do. Yeah, well, I, I think we all have... Uh are thinking around whether fintech has done what was meant to be. Everything is not as rosy as it appears. I think we're just kind of reproducing the uh, incumbent 
ecosystem in a new, prettier venture built package. Mm -hmm. um, to go from kind of what you were talking about, talking to everybody, this fintech Labrador, I love that idea. <laughs> um, yeah. you, you partnered with Muslim Census, among other things, to understand the use of circles. So mm -hmm. Sharia compliant investments and other things, the way that people use credit and the way that Muslims particularly use credit in the UK. And, and you're building up bloom circles, which is really mm -hmm. interesting. And you, you call them similar to Gamiya or committees or Hagbats, or I think it's Aho or Asusu, among other mm -hmm. communities. Talk about shared finances, how they work, and what are you thinking about in terms of applications? Yeah, so I, I am someone who I truly believe that saying that there's nothing new under the sun. And I think I probably touched on it back when we last spoke for One Vision um, about buy now, pay later, and how really, you know, it was like going back to Sears and layaway at the time. Similarly with circles, um, they're actually academically known as ROSCAs. So that is an acronym for Rotating Savings and Credit Associations. Um, but yes, as you say, they're called different things in different places. So in Arabic speaking countries, they're called Jamea. Um, within Bangladeshi and Pakistani communities, they call them committee. Hegbad in Somalia, um, Ajo Isusu in Nigeria. Actually, I think maybe your listenership might know them more as Tanda, um, which is what they're called in Mexico. But the basic premise of it is that it's very community-led. And this is something that we see in the global South. Um, you know, I myself come from kind of clash of cultures, as my both my parents are from Asia. My father's Indian, my mother's Taiwanese. And one of the things that I have experienced firsthand, but also learned through pedagogy um, during my degree, is this difference in cultural norms. And so, you know, there's the difference between individualism and collectivism. And something that I think a lot of cultures in the global south have in common is this collectivist culture. Um, and I think we kind of saw some reverberations of that with the past year and a half and how people kind of have acted in response to the pandemic. But very much in the global South, there is this idea of coming together as a community and doing what is best for the greater good. Um, I think in the West, and I'm not saying, you know, that one is better than the other at all, but in the West, we definitely have a much more individualistic society, um, and this translates into our financial systems. So in the West, you very much expect to go into a bank and you have a relationship with your bank. It's a one-on-one -on -one relationship, even kind of with fintech innovations, with peer-to-peer -peer lending, for example, that is still a one-on-one -on -one relationship that's happening there. And rarely have I seen in kind of contemporary times a collectivist approach. But actually, this collectivist approach is something that is all over the global South and did once um, actually take place in the West as well. You might know them better as credit unions or building societies. The idea being that how do we get people together to look after one another, you know? So the way that it works simply is a group of people come together and they decide they either want to save or borrow, or oftentimes they're referred to as savings groups. So you'll have 
you know, let's say the three of us said, we're going to get together and we're going to put a hundred dollars aside every month. And so together amongst us, we're able to save 300 pounds. Maybe I have the first withdrawal and I take that first $300 and do whatever I want with it. And then so on and so forth, Brad, then you have it. And then Theo, you would get it. And this is something that has been going on for, I mean, decades, if not centuries. I don't want to actually put a timestamp on it because I don't know for how long it's been around, but I know my grandmothers and their grandmothers took part in this. And so what we're trying to do is bring that into a digital format. Let's call it Rosca 2.0, Circles 2.0. The idea being that we live in a world that is so interconnected, that is so online. So why not bring this online as well? Why not bring the safety and security of, you know, a bank transfer <laughs> with a faster payments into this as well so that people aren't walking around with cash when they go you know i was speaking to people who would uh, some nigerian grandmothers who get on the bus or walk to church on a sunday with a hundred dollars in their purse and then you know one grandma is leaving church with a thousand dollars in her purse because she's got the draw that week you know and that's not exactly a safe thing to do um the other thing is is to make it as smooth as possible but create additional benefits down the road and so as i say we're, we're not recre recreating the wheel here we're just providing the technology for people to do what they've already been doing and so i think we've reached this maturation point in fintech where we finally have lots of b2b companies who can give us the infrastructure to build this and do this in a way where i don't have to you know, raise hundreds of millions to be able to start to build something like this. And the timing of it all, it just kind of felt perfectly, it was a perfect storm. And I think coronavirus kind of added to it in that this need to be with community, the need to feel like we can rely on each other, whether we need to borrow money or save money became super, super important. And the forefront of of a lot of people's thinking, I think. I I like that, and 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 I think the last year and a half, if nothing, has taught us, as you said, the importance of community. Right, something that oftentimes when we're so busy chasing after whatever it is that we lost sight of it, that we lost sight how connected we are. Um, not just individuals, but, you know, families and groups of people and not just in our one country, but around mm -hmm. the world. And and there's a lot of things that we have either forgotten or that we can do better. And, mm -hmm. and you know, if, if there's any silver lining at all, um, yeah. that will be one. So tell us a little bit more about your your plan um, on, you know, expanding into savings and investment and where um, can people find out more? What what um, how is your launch plan going? Yeah, well, I mean, the first kind of step that we're taking is to digitize these circles, which we call Bloom Circles. It's very important for me to note right now that we're not regulated yet, so I am not purporting to provide financial services to anyone until we have the stamp from the FCA, making that very very clear. Um, but 
that is really the first step in what I see as a really long journey. Um, that roadmap goes on infinitely. And there is so much that these circles allow people to do. They allow people to access fair credit. Something that um, I read recently that shocked me, but shouldn't have, is that the average payday loan in the UK is £100. And we are looking at APRs of like 1,400%. I saw one as high as like 2,100% the other day. And when you're someone who is, it's, it's a very paradoxical thing, isn't it? You have people who are um, low-wage workers who are doing the work that this past year and a half we have lauded as being the essential work. These are people who are cleaning our hospitals, cleaning our offices, who are stocking shelves, um, you know, making sure that we get from point A to point B, whether that's in an Uber or in a tube, right? And so these are people who really do make up the backbone of our society, but often struggle to make ends meet. And that does not mean that they deserve to only have the option of a predatory loan, right? On the other hand, there are people who do want to save, who have done well for themselves and perhaps don't know how to get started. Or perhaps um, what we find often with lower income demographics is this idea of liquidity being so important and that you never want to lock away money because you might need it around the corner. I think about the fact that I recently put some money into a fixed term savings account. And that really means like I've, I've just locked it away with the hope of making, well, let's hope some sort of return right on it or Actually, at this point, it's, it's nothing in terms of interest rates. But, you know, I've locked that away for 15 months and I'm not going to be able to touch it whether or not, you know, well, I can, I can pull it out. But the idea of doing that when you're lower income is just terrifying because what, what if something happens? What if the boiler breaks? What if, you know, we get evicted? Right. And this is a problem that we see in the States as well right now with the eviction moratorium, right, that came that recently was about to expire. There's so many different things that come up where actually if you don't have that money readily available, it's really scary. And so the idea is to help people start building towards these good saving habits by doing things that add a little bit of friction. So I call it manufactured friction or contrived friction, where you know, knowing that there's other people who are depending on your pay-in into a circle really means that you feel that that community spirit, right? Like, oh, actually, I, I should pay in because this person is going to withdraw and they need it for something else. But also this idea of out of sight, out of mind, simply, right? So if it's there, it will be used, whether it's five pounds or 5,000 pounds, if it's there, it will be used. So if we are able to kind of create that contrived friction and move it aside, then we can help people start to save for themselves. And little by little, even if it's, you know, 10 pounds a month, just 10 pounds after five months, that's 50 pounds. And that might be more than some of our customers would ever have had in savings to begin with. So this is kind of the first step. The second step is looking beyond just, you know, these basic behaviors. And something that I 
love doing is watching people. It's that fintech Labrador thing in me. <laughs> um, and this desire to understand people's behavior. And so when I talk about Bloom, I don't so much talk about a specific product necessarily, but a lot about digitizing existing behaviors. And so if we know that, for example, people love to go and buy a lottery ticket. Um, this is something kind of like around the world that, you you know, we see this all the time. I would go into my corner shop and, you know, drop off a package or pick something up. I remember one day I was there in the span of 30 minutes, I saw six people come in and each person spend anywhere from five to 20 pounds on lottery tickets. And that is not a judgmental statement. That is just a statement of fact. Whether or not that's a good thing or not is not for me to decide. But if people are going to spend five to 20 pounds on lottery tickets, where we know the chances of them winning are so, so slim, can we also then digitize that? Can we use that behavior to do something that is better for them? And we see a lot of that kind of, I think in the States, there's a few companies that are looking at kind of gamifying savings and that sort of thing. Um, I know Revolut recently introduced this like rewards lottery type thing within their app to reward engagement with the app. And that's you know, that's a really interesting approach as well. Maybe not necessarily for engagement, but for other things. So lots of different behaviors, remittances as well, sending money home for, for mom, sending money home for, for school fees, whatever. How can we not only digitize them, but then bring them additional reward and value for doing these things that they're already doing? There's, there's other ones like long game and others that are sort of um, gamifying the, the savings sort of roulette mm -hmm. where these bonus savings applications will come out. You know, when you were talking earlier, I was thinking like, oh, it's really interesting. You're sort of digitizing this idea of like next door for, for banking or something, you know, the, mm -hmm. like these community focused and it, and you could sort of define community in a lot of different, different ways. And we're seeing a lot of that happening within fintech right now. But then I was thinking, you know, Every time that that we talk to you, it's it's like there, there's it's simpatico, right? There, there's so much that I think we kind of think alike on around how fintech is not doing what it should be doing, mm. and and I was like sort of meandering like, okay, the last couple of weeks we've seen a couple of companies go public like Robinhood, and we mm. honestly have seen an awful lot of millionaires made from fintech in the last couple of years, mm -hmm. and most of these fintechs are building nothing that really adds value to people's lives. Yeah. You know, creating, creating an app that, that basically, uh, you know, creates a whole new slew of crypto bros is not necessarily to me helping our communities or right. something that, that is, you know, being uh, not much less sort of being uh, pervasive in society, adding, adding more credit and, and more use of, um, you know, fees and the rest that, that doesn't add value. So I really like mm -hmm. this idea that, you know, you've learned from what's there and you thought about what was missing in the community. So yeah. credit unions that are listening, take note because there's an awful lot of opportunity to sort of go down this path. Yes. So let's, let's talk about, you know, that in a broader sense. Um, you spent other times at, at companies like Klarna and Bud mm -hmm. and MasterCard, and you've seen this space for a long time. Mm -hmm. You have strong opinions, obviously, <laughs> as we do, about the right and the wrong direction of FinTech, which, yeah. which we do love. 
Um, what's working and what else needs to be changed? And then I have a follow-up about how you're building this. Yeah, I mean, what you said at the beginning, Brad, I'll bring it kind of back to that in that it really feels sometimes like we are rebuilding the same systems, the same financial institutions with a better tech stack, but same culture. You know, I look in, I peer into some of these fintech companies sometimes and I think, ooh, that feels toxic. <laughs> Don't want to go near that. That is Chernobyl level right there. I'm not touching that. Um, and I think a big part of it is culture, whether you're in a large bank, whether you're at a credit, rate, credit rating agency, whether you are at a, you know, fintech, a big part of that is is culture. And it's something that is like so touchy-feely and no one wants to talk about their feelings. But actually, it's really important, isn't it, if we want to create a different workforce and a workforce that is empowered to build innovative, interesting propositions. Um yeah, I think something that I, I think about a lot is like, obviously with Robinhood going public recently, I mean, full disclosure, I use Robinhood. So I was reading Matt Levine's, he's done a lot of pieces recently about Robinhood and how, you know, they make money off of um, options and and play, people placing options, right? And so... I often think about things through incentive alignment and what is it that they're trying to do? Where Where is the money coming from? Um, and I think we're at that point where a lot of fintech companies have done a great job of hiring some great designers, great product designers to build really cool user interfaces <laughs> and interesting UX that is you know, a few taps and a slide on your screen and not as painful maybe as having to walk into a bank branch as I remember having to do to cash a check, you know, back in the day. But it kind of feels like lipstick on a pig sometimes. Now, of course, I caveat, there's a lot of brilliant companies doing really interesting things. Um, but I think what really frustrates me and, and a big part of me leaving Klarna to do this and to, to work on Bloom was the fact that I felt like I was building the same product for the same person over and over and over. It was like Groundhog's Day. I would, you know, wake up and write, let's do some user research. And I'm speaking to the same urban dwelling, white collar person with disposable income who gets avocado toast and, is more concerned is am I overspending on lattes perhaps, or that seems to be the metric that we're, you know, that we're measuring or that we are measuring for them as a sign of personal financial health. I don't know, but it's, it felt repetitive and it also felt like, wait, hang about, why is it that serving people who have less money, people who are black or brown, who don't fit into the traditional mold of what financial services knows how to serve, knows how to underwrite, why is that considered charity? You know, and this is something I, I talk about often because people keep asking me, you know, have you considered incorporating Bloom as a charity? And I always, you know, smile politely and I thank them for their time, but 
the point here, and this is not me knocking charities because charities do brilliant work and we're partnering with a lot of charities at Bloom, but charities are able to fix immediate problems and do a lot of policy work to try and create longer term change, but they are not going to be able to create wide scale systemic change. And so the reason that, you know, people say, why are you going for VC funding? Why don't you look for grants and that sort of thing is because I do want to supercharge. I want that fuel to to take Bloom to the next level because I think it's possible to create change at scale and being able to change one person's life, maybe 10 people's lives, if they're able to grow their savings, grow their wealth, what are they going to invest it in? Hopefully they're going to invest it into their own communities, right? They're going to spend in their local area. They're going to support their local mosque. They're going to support the local restaurants, whatever. But that is a win for me. And that starts to kind of chip away at the change that needs to be made. And she's the founder of Promise Pay. And what they are doing is trying to disrupt the bail industry in the US. Um, and allow for people it's a it's a payments platform but very much focused on the us's incarcerated population and that was like mind-blowing and i heard her speak about this once where she said you know i knew exactly what i wanted in an investor i wanted someone who also agreed that vc funding would supercharge our mission and allow us to gain scale to change as many lives as possible and like I completely subscribe to that idea. So the idea is to look outside what's easy, because I feel like, you know, I can go down and, and talk to someone who works in the city and be like, oh, what are your pain points? Are you spending too much money on coffee? Fine. Um, but there are a lot of people who would benefit from just a little bit more attention. Um, and I think that also has something to do with who is building products and how they're building products. And a lot of, as you mentioned, working with Muslim census here in the UK, working with organizations like First Love Foundation and hand in hand with charities to actually co-create with the customers we aim to serve has really done wonders for our product roadmap, if I'm honest. One of the things that is, is great to see is that there are more opportunities for people to found fintechs focus on communities that weren't served before. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're using what I understand, some no code tools and applications like Bubble as part yes. of building this. And mm -hmm. do you think that because of all the things that we have in the ecosystem now where you could truly build a fintech without being a technical founder, that almost technical founders are not as necessary other than understanding how to build and who to partner with? I think that one's a tough one to answer because yes and no. Yes, because it allows you to get to an MVP much faster. But the caveat is that in fintech and financial services, we're just playing in a different pool, right? We're not building an app to share pictures of your dog and what you had for dinner, we are dealing with people's money and that is highly regulated. And so, you know, 
I have had conversations with the FCA to make sure that we are above board. And I was very um, open to working with them and open to them pointing things out that they thought needed to be improved upon and all of that. And it, it's a really long process that you don't necessarily need a technical founder for, but it kind of does uh, slow down something going to market. For example, Bloom. <laughs> but um, I think it allowed these like no code tools and, and all of the APIs available, the KYC as a service, the IDV as a service, the, you know, direct debit as a service, all of these things allow you to stitch together something quite compelling if you can find a new permutation of how to put those things together. And that has, I mean, for me, as someone who is semi-tech literate, I'm able to go and look at a bunch of API docu documentation and go, right, yeah, this is what I need. So I can kind of go, I'm going to use this vendor for this and this for this and and think through the entire user journey and know that I don't have to build it from scratch. And it's gonna be expensive at first to get them all together, but you know, maybe that will get me up and running a lot faster than it would if I had to build everything from scratch the way that Ann Bowden had to build Starling from scratch, right? Um, so it's been an interesting one. There's a whole other conversation that goes around fundraising um, and that's been, super interesting as a uh, female founder, woman of color, to constantly be asked, where is the technical co-founder? You know, where's the man in the room? <laughs> All of these questions. So that's why I kind of say with a pinch of salt, yes, of course you can, you can do it as a non-technical founder, but you can't uh, always escape the realities of funding environments and that sort of thing. But that's a whole other can of worms. I think that there will be a whole different episode and hopefully yeah. there's some liquid food involved <laughs> that yep. will make the conversation easier. Um, much has changed, but yet much has not changed. Mm. Um, speaking of, we have in the past nine months or so, uh, seeing more fintech startups that are coming to the market, focusing on the concept of communities, right? From, mm. uh, you know, Latinx to Black, API, LGBTQ, there are, there have been quite a few, um, that have started on this side of the pond. Mm -hmm. Have you seen something similar on your side? Um, and, and what more needs to be done? I think that's a fairly open-ended question. <laughs> yeah, I think, so I'm personally a big fan of this affinity banking, right? This like community specific or like people of affinity groups coming together and being served the way that they deserve to be. And actually with the recent boom in banking as a service providers, I think it's becoming easier and easier than it ever has been to roll something out that that is quick and, and does what you want it to do. Um, what's really interesting to me is that these groups are often, <laughs> when you speak to investors or if you even like the way that it's marketed oftentimes is as if it's a very niche group. But the thing that they all have in common is that they are very different from 
what the current Western financial system is and who it was built to serve. And it was built to serve the people who were in power for a long time, which is usually straight white men. I mean, I was reading until it wasn't until like probably 1970, I want to say that women weren't able to have a credit card in their own name in the UK uh, or somewhere in like the late 60s or early 70s. And that is astounding to me, right? But what this new kind of wave of affinity banking is allowing people to do is to think about not just life stage banking and the different needs that you have throughout your life, but also um, very specific things about your community. So I was speaking to my friend this past, past weekend who came to stay and we were talking about how much money she and her wife had to save to be able to go through multiple rounds of IVF so that they could have children. You know, it's something that for me as like a cis woman, I've never really had to think about having a surrogate, you know, or, or doing lots of rounds of IVF or adopting necessarily. Whereas if you are a same sex couple, that's probably something that is front of mind if you would like to have a family, right? Um, or things like Latinx and, and black communities where we know that there's a pay gap. And so what is what does that look like when you're planning for your retirement? Or if you're trying to get a mortgage where again, we know that systemic racism is literally baked into the algorithms within certain systems, right? So there's a lot of things at play here. What I have seen in the UK is um, a lot of Sharia compliant banks cropping up. So looking to serve Muslim communities, which I love. Um, Kestrel is one of them. RizQ is one of them. Um, and then there's Yielders who also do kind of investment that's Sharia compliant. But I've also seen, um, there's also been a, a huge focus on like life stage banking, which I think is interesting. And I know that both of you have kind of talked about that before, but, you know, getting children young and trying to work in financial literacy from a young age or for teens or like even Gen Z now, you know, like everyone wants to try and get Gen Z. How do we market to them? Are we on TikTok? <laughs> um, so it's, it's really interesting, but more than anything, this really excites me because if we are building products for these quote unquote, and I'm rolling my eyes as I say this, this is a podcast so people can't see me, but these niche groups of people, this can only mean wonderful things because what this means is we will now have data sets of whole groups of people that aren't having to conform into that one size fits all that incumbent banks have been serving for so long. And I'm always banging on about the fact that you cannot change what you have not measured. And so this is really exciting for me because if we're starting to offer, you know, mortgages or loans for people who are LGBT plus to have surgeries, to have surrogates or whatever. And we actually find out that their um, repayment rates are a hundred percent. I mean, we wish, right. But, <laughs> you know, that's amazing. How do we then work that into our existing algorithms to then make sure that everyone else who's not currently banked with daylight, for example, is able to have that same experience. So, I'm very heartened by it. Um, and I think that 
you know, it's it's a really interesting time to to get into that and have these affinity specific groups and affinity banking, as it were. Yeah, the the funny thing, though, as I often think about what they're doing, are they really niche, though, right? Mm. If you look at how our world and our society is changing, it's becoming more diverse, more different than how it was 30, mm. 40 years ago. And so if the world is changing, then I would say even the quote unquote incumbents need to start thinking about how do you service more people mm -hmm. instead of staying with your old group that looks exactly the same where the population is dwindling down a little bit. There's mm -hmm. a whole big world out there, um, ladies and gentlemen who are listening and is very exciting. So perhaps there's something to be learned from some of the newer FinTech startups. Yeah, um, so to be fair though, I will say this, Brad and uh, Bradley, you've brought it up a few times. Um, it is right now, a lot of the propositions are UI. Um, I'm just being like completely, yep. you know, upfront and being honest about what it is that they are right now. But if that's the first step, then great. You know, it does take a lot of that's that's kind of the the paradox, isn't it, of like having so many options to have, you know, various B2B platforms and be able to do these things, you know, issue a card instantly with Marketo. That's great. But that also means you're dependent on them. So I think we still have a long way to go, but I'm very excited and optimistic about where we're headed. I like that. Yes, there is a glimmer of hope somewhere down there. No <laughs> <laughs> gloom and gloom. Yes, no, no, it's it. It will be okay. We are twenty twenty one. So, with that, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Nina. Always a pleasure, and Ooh. hopefully soon, one of these days, we will see you in person across yes. the pond. Um, I yes, can't I can't wait. We will get there. And for the rest of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of One Vision. And we'll talk to you all next week. Mm -hmm.